the driving idea behind Web 3.0 is that I can contribute information to the internet, and then it is not owned by one centralized authority. It is owned by, uh, is really owned by me. Welcome back to another episode of People of Product. My name is George Brooks. And on today's episode, I'm joined by Daniel Inhart and Tyler Hilker. And Tyler's gonna, in the house. Tyler's hey in the house. We're going to jump into a topic that every single person on the face of the internet is talking about right now, and that is Web 3.0. Hmm. It's, uh, it's exciting space. It's an exciting time because it feels like that next wave of what a lot of us experienced when we first got into this business, which was Web 2.0. We'll unpack what that is. But it feels like we're on the precipice of this, this next thing that everybody's kind of chatting about and trying to figure out, honestly. It's a little confusing. It's a little, mm-hmm. there are a lot of new words and there's a lot of new technologies in play and purposes. And why, why does it exist? Why do we need this? So we're going to jump into that. Tyler's probably one of our, our most experienced only because he's just nerded out on the nights and weekends playing around with some things. And so we have just, uh, we thought we'd have, bring him into the conversation, really start to talk about why does Web, Web 3.0 exist? What's its promise to the world? And then because we know we won't be able to get this all in one episode, this is just going to be your setup. This is just helping us to kind of start the conversation that we think that this is something we need to be paying attention to. And quite honestly, every organization is going to have to pay, pay attention to because the wave is coming. But how fast and what it means and everything else will unpack a little bit more. So this is mm. going to be the start of a, a quick series where I'll be doing at the beginning of the year and um, really starting to unpack each of the areas of Web 3.0. And we'll go through some of the vocabulary of that. But you're looking at a few episodes around this topic, and we'll try to tie it back to who are the people doing this work? How will it affect the work that we do? And what does it mean for Crema? And what might it mean for your team or your organization? Hmm. Sound good, guys? That sounds great. Sounds great. It only took us four takes to get to that, but that, yeah, we're we're here. We're here. Um, so it's let's, the new year. It's the new year. Come on, we're, we're, we're getting there. we're, we're there. getting the cogs. We got to grease the wheels. Yep. Okay. So if we're at Web Web three point it leads me to assume there's been two points before this. So someone um, unpack for me what what's been. What's been the history of the internet? Ooh, oh, yeah. No, good... I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to tackle the history of the internet and humanity. And mm. no. Yeah. Well, uh, it, starts, it starts with Al Gore. So please start. <laughs> Al Gore. Thank you, Al Gore. <laughs> yeah. So uh, there have been at least two iterations of the internet, maybe more. I don't know. I haven't been keeping track. I'm just using the convenient decimal system we have. But um, it's, it's been said uh, that Web 1.0 was largely about publishing, where you had one person or one company, and they were creating websites and content and then pushing it out into the world. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that was driven by companies, but it was also driven very heavily by individuals. And there was a sort of groundswell that created uh, room for these companies to move into. And so, uh, but it was, the internet was, pretty or as as a as somebody who was building the internet it was pretty focused i i could build my own website and push it out into the world there was a, a technological hurdle where i had to learn html and um 
and so some of those early languages, but um, I could do that. And it was, it was not simple, but I could do that for myself. So Dan, Tyler, that's go. really good. Give us an example. Our listeners also an example. So web 1.0, you mentioned you're building content and you're, you're pushing it out into the world. What is maybe one of those platforms or one of those ways you could do that in web 1.0 kind of bring us back, you know, bring some of that stuff out of our memory. Yeah. So the, the more common ones were just, were new sites mm-hmm. when somebody was, there would be, it was like a reflection of a newspaper or a magazine where it was all them and they were pushing their content outwards just in the same way that they had done. There was very skeuomorphic in terms of how they, they talked to their audiences. Yeah. But it early days, we're talking like you did have to teach yourself how to write HTML. There was no, it was all inline styling. You're not even dealing with CSS or anything like that yet. That came later. I mean, it was really, truly um, image references, links, and text on a Mm -hmm. rendered view that was pulled down from a file server, from an FTP someplace. Yeah, it it typically lived on one of your servers, Mm -hmm. either a server in uh, your college dorm room or... uh, a server on Rackspace or uh, even your own on-premises server uh, servers. Like you, mm-hmm. you, you owned a space right there, and that was that was your defined contribution. And there were no right. platforms at that time. I mean, it was it was truly right. just a file in a storage that you could access. Yeah. Well, even you mentioned George uh, rendered the rendering itself looked. Ba- I mean, it ju- it was just text, and if it was a link, it was blue. With a line yeah. under it. Yeah, browsers I mean, weren't really, really that that sophisticated at the time. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so, so fast then, forward a little bit. There was a, an yeah. age of publishing becoming a little bit more sophisticated, but then we started to see the rise of a couple things, and and then I'll let you guys. I'll, I'll I'll tee it up, and you can take it from there. But a couple things. One is you started to see uh, hosting providers providing centralized places to store data, rather than me having to store it on my local desktop that was sitting underneath my desk or, and also people starting to create um, platforms that reduced the level of effort to create websites. And then what would become this new wave of creating apps. Um, And that was, it was pretty close to that time was also the dawn of, of the mobile device, I think. Yeah. 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 Um, I would say, 2.0 2.0 starts a, li- a couple of years before that. Sure. And 2.0 is defined by uh, companies enabling people with no technical ability whatsoever to contribute to the internet. So mm-hmm. web, d- web, point, web 1.0 is uh, either an individual with technical knowledge or a company pushing out content in one direction. It was almost entirely one directional. And Web 2.0, it became sort of bi-directional where I could, um, Twitter is the easiest example where I could sign up for Twitter with an email and a password and immediately begin contributing to the internet, putting out my own content as it were. And so Web 2.0, back in those days, I was doing social media strategy and research. And so there was this interesting confluence of, um, honestly, even before Twitter, get a lot of credit but there were uh, bulletin boards where people that's that's how social interactions would take place and they were very rudimentary basic by today's standards but they were tremendously effective in terms of building communities and helping people get their content online and web 2.0 is largely is largely seen as 
a sort of as is largely conflated with social media but right. it was much more than that because it was the this, this defining aspect of helping other people get their information online what and whatever that meant to them videos for youtube twitter facebook tumblr that kind of thing and really what we saw is the evolution of that i mean it wasn't a short period of time we're talking about 15 to 20 years that web 2.0 has really been in full swing so mm-hmm. I think a lot of us have been kind of going, what's next? Like, if anything, I'm not going to say we're bored because it kind of got down into like, we're really refining the things that we already have so much that it didn't feel like anything was that revolutionary. I mean, there was little little peaks and moments of like a really cool new SaaS product that would come out or a new social platform that was using audio and video or, you know, uh, disrupting industries with the same exact kind of technology, which is about storing data, updating data, and making sure people could communicate through these platforms. So you got Airbnb that disrupts hotels. You got Uber and Lyft disrupts taxi and ride services. You know, mm-hmm. you had disruption of different industries, but at a certain point, even that became a saturation. It's like, what industry are we going to disrupt? There were ones that adopted slower or faster, and we're still benefiting from that because we're helping our customers, our organizations still think about how to adopt truly web 2.0 technologies, cloud servers, mm-hmm. authentication um, platforms, you know, data storage and data access, machine learning when it makes sense to, to process large amounts of information. Um, but it, it's the same, I mean, it's the same thing we've been saying for the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's an, another key differentiator that we'll get into with Web, web 3 is we saw a mass um, distribution of how technology is stored. So it's not just I'm outsourcing my content to be owned on Twitter servers, but Twitter themselves has data centers around the world and those data centers are massive. And obviously AWS and, um, and other enterprise level solutions. Right. And so we saw the power of having content distributed and stored elsewhere so that it wasn't just on a given server in New Mexico or wherever. Right. But we had access at any given point. Well, and I think you also saw, so I think some of the backlash or some of the concern around Web 2.0 is it did create these monolithic giants. These are what we you know, refer to as our tech giants that for all practical purposes, own all the data. They own all the access to the data. They own the means that, uh, in, in, in processes at which the data is distributed and um, repurposed and monetized and everything else. Um, And there was really only a few players. So you're talking about Google, um, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft. Um, I mean, I guess then there are the subsidiaries of those, right? So you get things like DigitalOcean was as a big um, provider for large scale um, data. But it was all owned by, you know, we're talking, what, a dozen or less organizations worldwide for hundreds and hundreds of millions, if not billions of applications running um, both everything from a kid building a game all the way through an enterprise, you know, running their entire supply chain management. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and it's not in the, in, the, in the cloud, which was the big thing, but really it wasn't, there wasn't actually in the clouds. It was in these monolithic companies distributed servers across the world and the interesting thing is it wasn't just users 
flocking to these platforms. It was also aggregators. Ben Thompson in his Stratechery work, and he's been talking about this for a long time, talks about aggregators. And so in, in such an economy like Web 2.0, uh, the, the goal is to build up as many users and as many, um, as many suppliers as you can to drive ad revenue because we know that we don't pay for most of the stuff. And so you right. have to build up, uh, you have to aggregate as much as you possibly can. And that's where the competition is. Mm -hmm. And so that drove um, improvements in user experience and so we have very high expectations compared to where we were even just a couple of years ago in terms of what an app does for me, what I get out of it, how the level of effort that I have to put into a product in order for me to regularly use it. And that's where the, the strongest uh, competitive advantages came is companies that were willing to invest in not just design for design's sake, but understanding the customers because that was the last technological um, advancements could only get them so far. So mm -hmm. Airbnb and Uber, it started out with a technology that, that connected supply and demand, but eventually it was such, in a way it was a, it was a pretty easy, easily replicable model that companies like Lyft and Verbo and, and whatnot started moving that space and competition for users. And that started with how easy you're going to make my life as, as a supplier mm -hmm. or a user. I think what you just said there, Tyler, is the best way for me to the difference between 1.0, 2.0, and then three, which we'll get into, but is just, you mentioned economy, the economy of 2.0. So I think of a give and take. So in 1.0, I didn't have to give anything. And, but I also got very little, you know, it, yeah. and it had very little effect. Um, it was more of a tool that I might use once every so often, you know, research paper, or I need to go out and find some, or I need to, I want to read a newspaper you know, something to that extent. And then you get into 2.0 and what happens, like I have, we've all given a lot, but the expectation is that we've, we receive a lot in return. And if you think about it, I mean, 90%, if not all of your life can be facilitated and functions because of web 2.0, yep. all that they have of me from a personalization standpoint, but it's also facilitated, you know, whether I'm paying bills or I'm doing banking or, you know, a whole career is based off there because we've given a lot, but there's also this expectation of, of also receiving. So from a personalization and also economy standpoint, that kind of helps me wrap around my, my head around the difference. And it's all around data. I mean, it yeah. all comes back to data. And, and as an individual, you're expecting to get this great UX, which Tyler was talking about for basically no cost or very little cost. I mean, we think about how much we used to pay for cable, like just cable TV. Mm -hmm. And now we're like, oh my gosh, something that would cost a hundred dollars plus a month. That's crazy. Or like, but yet we have access to unlimited knowledge and basically we can communicate with anyone in the world instantly for next to no money. Right. Um, and, and yet we are exchanging, as Dan has said, uh, we are exchanging something, which is our privacy, our information, um, our eyeballs, what we have, our attention, um, or we're participating in a, an experiment that aliens are funding. I'm not exactly sure. Could be, could be any of those things. You never know. We'll right. find out at some point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. Even the, even the so-called innovative apps like TikTok, I'll pick on them. Uh, not that they're all that new anymore, but it was, it was a hit because it provided a certain interaction model and a certain type of content that was unique. But in terms of 
uh, in terms of aggregating a bunch of eyeballs and aggregating advertisers. And it, it wasn't fundamentally doing all that much different than Vine, which got bought by Twitter years ago, or even Twitter, because it simply allowed somebody to easily push their content out into the world. And so what we've seen in the last couple of years is this sort of extraction of content from a broader array of people. And so it's just the same thing. How do you, how do you create an app or a product that allows more people to get their, their input out into the world and then allows other people to see that? And so it's, it's like a, a Twitter for this, a Vine for this, an Uber for this. And when you start hearing that, you know that you're reaching a sort of extraction phase where a certain model is nearing its uh, nearing critical, its, critical yeah, mass. Its and, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and, I, and Tyler, I think that's really key because uh, we're not suggesting we'll jump it. Let's jump over to Web 3.0 real quick here. But we're not suggesting that Web 2.0 is going to like disappear overnight, right? No. So many of the platforms, principles, technology, conveniences that we have are not going to go away anytime soon. And we can talk about the, the level of the barrier entry or the friction that is um, necessary right now in Web 3.0. But um, we're, we are suggesting that there is, there, there is a movement coming that's gaining enough traction that um, people should start looking their, picking their heads up a little bit and start looking at it. So let's, let's jump there. So Web 3.0, what is, what is, let's just go with the definition, but what, how would you define what Web 3.0 is? Yeah, so building on our previous concepts, Web 3.0 is, is, is basically one-way street, reading and then, or writing and then reading. 2.0 is more like a two-way street where I can consume content, but I can also contribute content easily with minimal technical knowledge. And yet, it, that information, my photos, my uh, my contributions are generally owned by the company that owns the platform that I'm using to put those out there. So there's centralized ownership, but uh, broad uh, broad uh, contribution. And Web 3.0 is uh, a next step in terms of ownership. So it's it's decentralized ownership. Uh, typically, this is not always the case. This is just a very generalized definition. But yep. the idea, the driving idea behind Web 3.0 is that I can contribute information to the internet, and then it is not owned by one centralized authority. It is owned by, uh, is really owned by me. Is the, is the central idea? Mm. Would you say that's the crux, Tyler? For anyone learning about, it's like that's the that's the crux. If you had to get to the, I guess the I bottom would say level. That. Okay. Yeah. I mean, in that, that by definition is what this, you know, everybody keeps saying it's decentralized, it's decentralized, mm -hmm. um, whether that's decentralized finance or decentralized organizations or decentralized, um, ownership, really ownership. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's a yeah. sense of it, that, 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 that information is no longer held in one place. It, yeah. it and is distributed across and, and I can block. So I'm, we'll get into that in a second. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, and it, it, it's important to understand that it's not just decentralized technology, right. it's decentralized ownership and contribution, because like I was saying before, AWS is inherently distributed. Sure. Facebook, their storage is distributed and that's all good. And so blockchain is in web three is in a way of building on the, the strength of that. Mm -hmm. And with that, 
the decentralized ownership, it's not, there's transparency there. There's ownership. Mm -hmm. So everyone who's contributing knows there's a transparency of like what transaction has taken place or who might own what. Um, can you go into that a little bit as well, Tyler? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, Web3 is, uh, some have said it's just a, a clever marketing term for technology built, like blockchain type technology. Blockchains are a kind of technology that, again, in general, not all, this is not true of all of them, but uh, most of them are open source. They are open technologies that everybody can see what's what's happening. It's a, it's a system of record or like a ledger that everybody can see every transaction and every owner on that particular blockchain. And that provides a sort of transparency that we don't have in terms of finance, for instance. And that, that scares a lot of people because uh, in a way it's, oh, but I don't want people seeing how much money is in that particular wallet or account. Mm -hmm. But it's also uh, really, uh, it's revolutionary in the sense that uh, if somebody's on this blockchain, I know exactly what's happening. And if it's a city government or a company, uh, then that can be really, that can build trust in that company because I know exactly what's happening there. Uh, we, as we were doing some research on this, this idea of it being a bottom up designed structure came up. And I thought that was an interesting way to look at it because what, we, what you're suggesting is, is when you think about the people that are both building these solutions, creating these communities, um, releasing these assets to purchase and to invest in, et cetera, really it's, it rarely comes from like, again, one organization going, we're going to make the thing that everybody wants to buy. Instead, I've heard it. Um, I've heard the term recently flipped. Web 2.0 was all about the MVP, right? Especially with lean startup, it was all about minimum viable product. Like, right? what's the thing I can release as a company to get users engaged and bought in as quickly as possible to get to that critical mass we talked about? Whereas Web 3.0 is really about what's the minimum viable community? How can I gather enough people to say? Do we believe in this white paper or this, or it's truly is to say, do we believe in this idea of value, of asset creation, of ownership, of shared ownership, um, that we would invest a shared amount of time, a shared amount of design, a shared amount of skill in creating something together? And, 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 and it will be in the, in kind of in the open this is where it gets super nerdy, depending on how open you want it to be, which what we found is that there, there, there is this kind of, there's this tension in the web 3.0 because it is so vulnerable. It's so transparent. People have found ways because people do this of creating anonymity through basically fake accounts or fake names or fake out, you know, like, or multiple addresses in order to hide their identity but then you have the community which says, well, if you, if you want to participate here, we need to know who you are, which then goes to the whole process of like doxing, which is like basically saying like, I'm going to show you everything that I have, everything that I am, so that I can prove that I am the person that this, this account says that I am, so that you will trust me even more as I'm contributing to this shared idea. It's, so, <laughs> I want to be careful uh, in saying this, but it has a lot of like socialism kind of terms and in, in thinking like in the sense of like, there's a very shared responsibility and everyone coming to, to bringing something to the table, voting on it, everybody kind of contributing at equal level. 
um, rather than having one pinnacle owner? I'd, I'd call it uh, more less socialist and more uh, like communist. Oh, oh, collectivist. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not that either. Uh, <laughs> but no, because it's it's purely voluntary. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's you're opting into this system that says I want to contribute in this way, and these others want to contribute in this way. And so, an important point about blockchains and how they're distributing, bring it back to your community point, is that um, blockchain networks. Are, is, a, is a network of compu actual computers running a virtual computer software. And I'm, I'm borrowing from Chris Dixon yep. on this. He's been uh, a bit of a, I'll call, okay, call him a Web3 crush, if you will, mm -hmm. because his thoughts are just so clear and concise. And, uh, but it's- We've uh, all it's, got it. We've all got our Web3 point, <laughs> Web3 crushes. It's, it's cool. Oh yeah. It's yeah, this network of uh, computers owned by different people. And then those people based on their participation will vote on particular initiatives within the community. And so yeah. Ethereum, if you're running Ethereum nodes, you have a certain uh, level of voting power. Developers on a network can vote on particular measures to say, we want to, we want to change the way that this works. We want to change the way that this works. And in order to, for a, a blockchain network, it needs a community to build it up and develop a certain number of nodes to make it uh, like worth using in a way, mm -hmm. and so that's that's how communities are driving these different networks. And it depends. Each each blockchain is built with certain assumptions about the way that things should go. So Bitcoin was primarily financial, and that was the the first one of its kind. And then Ethereum obviously has has become a massive uh, force. And it was built with certain assumptions about the way that blockchain, blockchains, blockchains should operate. And then we have these other chains that are, uh, some of them are purpose built. And that's where I've, I've been pretty intrigued because there are some that are built for supply chains or some that are built mm -hmm. for gaming or some that are built for video or advertising or whatever it is. And so instead of having a community around a geography, you mm -hmm. have a community around a shared interest about how a particular blockchain could influence the world in new ways. And mm -hmm. so you have these uh, these communities driving that. And then, George, what you're talking about, where a community can buy in, uh, they can buy into a performer's contract, theoretically. Right. So, and this is where we can start defining some, some basic vocabulary terms. I could, there's a, we'll say there's an artist who has released an album on blockchain and there's, they are committing to the, the proceeds of those record sales uh, because they're tied into a smart contract, which is basically a, a contract written into code that whenever somebody at the end of the year, all the proceeds from that album will, will be divvied up among people who have purchased an NFT. And so that gives them some sort of investment in the outcome of this artist. And so you get communities rising up around artists, either music or JPEGs or whatever it is. And those communities combined with the developer communities are driving the growth of these various blockchain networks. Hmm. So there's a few terms already that have gotten yeah. thrown out. <clears throat> and yeah. this is, I'll be honest, this is probably the biggest barrier to entry for most folks that are getting into this. They're hearing these terms, they're seeing people talk about it. Definitely though, mm -hmm. you know, celebrities are participating because they've got the capital to, to jump in and do these very influential um, campaigns in some way. Mm -hmm. um, but 
I think you, you, you said a few things there. So what I want to do is I, I want to just kind of cue these up. I don't want to take any time to explain what each of these are, because that's mm-hmm. what we're going to do on the following episodes. Right. So yeah. we'll go through and we'll, we'll unpack these and we'll probably even have more words and more kind of subtopics that we'll unpack in each of those. So if you're actually into web three and you're listening to this and you go, well, you didn't list those other things that are really important. Well, just be patient. We'll get to it. Yeah, hey, just slow going here. Right? Yeah. We got all yeah, the time. Really the time. Like, Goodness. Send us a note. We'd love to hear what you Yeah. Do. Um, so uh, you already mentioned blockchain. We're, we're going to jump into blockchain as one of kind of like the core foundational things that we need to unpack, really explain a little bit more of how that works where it came from, the history behind it, the potential of it, because everything that we're going to talk about kind of from here on out in some way, shape or form lives on what we're referring to as the blockchain. And it's not new, but we need to explain it. Um, We're going to get into NFTs, non-fungible tokens, um, what they are, what they are not, um, what that they are capable of being. And that probably will be pretty closely talked um, around this idea of a smart contract and the potential of smart contracts um, mm. really to disrupt pretty rapidly some pretty big companies in the world. Um, and, and, and yeah, indus- go ahead. Service industries. Yeah. I mean, you think about any industry that um, involves middle, uh, you know, middlemen mm-hmm. individuals, those that are processing or verifying that something, a transaction is taking place. Um, that is going to be um, a a big threat Um, threat absolutely so i mean it's really the service industry in general yeah oh man and 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 we're we're a service we're that i mean crema is that to some extent so we're that's one of the reasons we're paying attention is because it it will be real for us so uh, we'll talk more about smart tracks and smart contracts nfts um, tokens um crypto so currencies coins um uh, decentralized finance DeFi, um dows that took me a while to wrap my head around what a DAO was and the potential of what a DAO could be. I was like, is Crema a DAO? Could we be a DAO? I don't know. How does that work? Um, and wallets. Um, so um, again, these are that we want to kind of break down some barriers to even how, how to start to play, right? So I've said this a couple of times as I'm learning Web 3.0, the same way that I learned Web 2.0, it's primarily for me by getting my hands dirty, or, you know, mostly just my pointer finger because I click on a mouse and I move it around. But, you know, you get what I'm saying. Like, I'm, I want to click around. I want to play with it. But there's, there are some things that are a pretty real barrier and, and a financial risk to playing, right? Depending on what you're playing with and how much- None you're of willing. this is financial advice. <laughs> yeah. Let's just say that right yeah, now. Yeah, that's a good disclaimer. Nothing here is financial advice on any of this or the future episodes. And we'll remind you of that. Um, and, and there'll be other, there'll be other um, pieces as well, but those are kind of like the core areas we want to camp around. Finally, I think where we're going to, we're going to land, and this is kind of at the very end of it, but maybe actually the first thing you're hearing about, which is this idea of the metaverse. And so that actually in some ways is a, is a slightly different thing, but it's mm-hmm. built still on the, the technology and the platform on the ownership of these things on the space at which people will participate uh, on who owns the the verse or not. Um, and so we want to end there because I think it'll culminate in the potential of what a alternate internet reality might be. Mm. Um, and so um, we'll go through that. We'll go through each of those things. Um, I want to end real quick though, because we kind of touched on this and then, and then Tyler, I want to throw it to you, but what, 
real quick to wrap up before we, we kind of just wrap up this like intro episode, what would you say is the promise of web three where we talked a little bit about what it is or maybe a little bit even how it functions, but what is it, what is it promising us? What's that better future potentially look like? Um, as we start thinking about the, this, this wave of web three. Dan, I have so many thoughts, Dan, do you have thoughts? I was kicking it over to you. The the thing that gets me most excited is not the technology. It is the increased accessibility of um, of almost all of this. So when I think about uh, financial access or the unbanked in uh, many parts of the world, the lack of uh, being unbanked means that you don't you don't have access to a bank for whatever reason, whether hmm. you don't have an identity in the country that, that you live in, or um, you don't have consistent income. Um, and, and so it's more about, uh, I, I don't, I don't really like this language, but wrestling control away from certain gatekeepers like Facebook and massive institutions that for in their genuine best interest, they've avoided working with, with certain uh, certain parties, but in doing so, uh, that's keeping so many people, millions of people, out of uh, an environment in which they can thrive. Mm-hmm. And so that includes finance, that includes connections to other communities, that includes um, access to different kinds of work, and um, and so in a, in a way, I can't hold. It's hard for me to hold the Web 2.0 companies. Um, in, in too much judgment because there's there's some genuine risk mm. out there to supporting eco- communities like that and econ- like these smaller economies. But there are lots of people who are willing to support those kinds of communities and take on that risk. And so building networks and, uh, and platforms that support people like that is really, really exciting to me. Yeah, that's really good. I, I think where my mind went first was but I'll preface it. I think using an analogy is going to be like moving a really heavy boulder up a hill for a long time first before the, you know, the kinetic energy can happen is just this idea around security and trust and privacy. I think there is a big deal um, to be said of knowing that my data, my information is decentralized. It's not all owned and used by corporations and only a few corporations for whatever they want to use it for. Now, granted, I enter into that, but um, there is something to be said about, again, security and trust. And I think this could be its own topic, honestly, is like, Mm -hmm. what is going to have to happen in just, you know, human psychology and just the mind to be willing to, because George, you mentioned it earlier, like, it's kind of vulnerable. Like I am to prove who I am. I have to give all a lot of information that normally I wouldn't um, on the internet. And so what's going to have to happen, uh, what level of vulnerability or trust are people going to have to get comfortable with to release that information, knowing that that information is actually probably better kept, that data is better kept, there's pri- there's better privacy around blockchain, but I think it's going to take a little bit. And as we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, 
it's so complex and complicated right now and confusing. There's going to have to be work towards that of making it to where there's better understanding and education around how to use this technology and what it does for me um, before individuals jump in. But um, I think the promise of it and one of the, the, the beauties of decentral, decentralization is security, trust, and privacy. But I think it might take a little bit to get there. Yeah, for sure. And, um, and kind of behind all that is, is a new level of responsibility for mm-hmm. what we put out in the world. Uh, That's a really we, good point. We outsource a lot of that to Facebook and um, they haven't always handled that well, right? It's, it's pretty easy for them to, uh, to not do that. And uh, I wanted to throw this out as a, as a sort of challenge because, and it's why I made my point about user experiences early, earlier in our conversation, because we've grown so accustomed to experiences that cater to that make things as easy as possible that cater to mm-hmm. us as end users and so our expectations are that any new thing is extremely easy and mindful of us whereas in the web3 world this is this is messy territory this is not uh i like to say that we're on trails we're not on paved roads i mean in most cases we're bushwhacking and we found mm-hmm. that in our experiments earlier this year where we start building out our own um, NFT platform. And there were very few resources for how to do that well. And so we spent, uh, most of our time bushwhacking our way into, into this and getting our hands dirty and working with the material. But as, as people who were curious about this kind of thing would, and I would argue that almost everybody should be, we need to keep in mind that fact that there's an increased responsibility because the, the safeguards that we're used to aren't there yet. And so we need to be more mindful of what we put out there. There, there is genuinely more risk, mm-hmm. but because our expectations are high from these web 2.0 experiences, we need to um, hold those intention and push on web three experiences to make them more like 2.0, but know that it's not going to happen overnight. Just like right. you were saying, Dan, right. it's going to take a while, but uh, if we, it's easy for us to dismiss web three technologies like, crypto wallets, which, or buying something on OpenSea, these things that are pretty normal in that, in that uh, web three world, but are, if you're not familiar with it, it take, it took me several days to understand what was happening. And if, and if well, I, then you tried have... to explain it to me and it took me a week of going and doing <laughs> oh it for gosh. myself because I didn't understand what you're talking about. Yeah. Right. I don't know how and, many and different we... blog articles I've read Tyler ever since, you know, you and I talked about, it. I was just like, okay, <laughs> there's a lot of education here. Yeah. It's, and it's messy. And, and that, similar complexities behind every experience we use today yep. we just don't see it because we've yep. we've kind of slowly become acclimated and they've they've the companies to their credit have hidden a lot of that complexity from us but if we dismiss these new experiences because they're difficult and hard to understand then we're going to miss out on some pretty cool opportunities and i'm not just talking financial but i'm talking yeah. in terms of the way that things are done more broadly mm-hmm. So what you're saying is everyone after finishing this up needs to go download a MetaMask wallet and then go buy a CryptoPunk and a board. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that at all. Financial advice brought to you by Tyler Hilker. Um, No, (laughs) no, Um, no, 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 I want to, I love that language. I I have more thoughts. So many thoughts. It's, uh, it's pretty fascinating. 
Not my thoughts, yeah. other people's thoughts. Well, and I think this is it. We're in a phase of learning. So we thought we'd just be transparent with our learning and share it with you. Um, so come along this journey yeah, with us. Sure. Make sure if you haven't subscribed already to the podcast or um, you um, know others that might be interested in this space, as we explore this, hopefully they'll be interested to kind of see what we're seeing from the position of, a, of an organization that often is being hired to be looking ahead for our clients, right? So a lot of the folks that we're working with are asking us, where's this going? You know, what do I need to be paying attention to this? What do we need to be looking at this? And mm -hmm. quite transparently, most of it, it's like, don't worry yet. We're, we're looking ahead. We'll get there. We get, you got some time. It maybe is coming faster than we thought it would, but we'll be all right. You know, like we'll, we'll all figure it out together. And so um, if you want to learn a little bit about what we're, uh, we're seeing, yeah, subscribe. And, and, and definitely um, if you can share this podcast out, because I think the next few episodes are going to be a lot of fun to uh, to learn together so tyler dan thank you so much for exploring this setting this up i'm excited for the next few episodes it's gonna be really good same looking oh, yeah, forward to it. good stuff either all right <laughs> well uh it depends on when you're listening to this but uh, merry christmas happy holidays happy new year all that good stuff it was fun to to to, to, to be with you guys this week year and That's i great. think you all froze but i didn't so i know that it recorded fine on my side we're gonna keep going with it yep sounded great Wonderful. All right. Thanks, everybody. Cheers. Thanks, y'all. This episode of People of Product was produced by Larissa McCarty with support from Julie Branson and Steph Inger. Our hosts are George Brooks and Daniel Linhart. People of Product is brought to you by Crema, a digital product agency. We believe that creativity, technology, and culture can help individuals and organizations thrive. Learn more at crema.us.